I want to invite everyone to open your Bible to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Uh, John is in the New Testament. There's four books that start the New Testament. It begins with Matthew, and then Mark, Luke, and then John. These are the four Gospels that each uh, give a perspective of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be in John chapter 8 for the bulk of our time this morning. But we've been in a series uh, called The Road. As we've been looking at uh, Jesus' claim in John chapter 14, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Last week we looked at the, Jesus as the way. How Jesus shapes the way we live, the way we interact. And the big idea of the series is that the Jesus way connected to the Jesus truth empowers the Jesus life. So last week, looking at Jesus as the way, this week, focusing on Jesus as the truth, the truth. Now, truth is a word that means so many different things in different contexts. It's a packaged word. It's packed with convictions and thoughts and hesitations. So it's important to understand what Jesus is talking about when he says he is the truth. And I think in order to get at that, we can look back in John chapter 8. Jesus is having a conversation with the crowd, including some of his followers, some of his disciples, including some people who opposed him, the religious leaders of the day, and just a number of people who are just asking questions, trying to discern, who is this guy they've heard about? And Jesus says this in, in verse 31 of John 8. Jesus said to, the, to those who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then they, being the Pharisees and others, answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen and heard from your father. And this launches this conversation and argument where Jesus is basically, go, where they argue who is under the father, whose father is Satan. <laughs> An interesting argument and conversation. But over the course of it, Jesus makes these drastic claims about his authority. Listen to some of the things he says. I mean, we already saw. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In verse 51, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. In verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And this statement would have shocked everyone around him. We've been, before the series, we were going through the book of Exodus, and we were reminded when Moses meets God at the burning bush, what's God's self-disclosure of his identity? He says, I am. I am. Jesus is claiming right here to be God. Jesus isn't just saying he's a good teacher, a nice guy, a prophet. He's saying he is the path to life everlasting. And, you know, there's a temptation, and they knew this. 
They knew this. When Jesus made these statements, they understood what he was claiming, who he was claiming to be. He was claiming to be God. And how do they respond to this claim? In verse 59, what do you do when someone claims to be God? When someone shatters your identity and who you thought God to be, what do they do? So they picked up stones to throw at him. And Jesus hid, hid from himself, hid from them, and went into the temple. <laughs> so we have this interaction where Jesus is confronted with the religious leaders of his time. And he says, basically, I am the truth. I am the way to God. And rather than receiving that, they pick up stones to kill him. You know, Jesus doesn't allow us to put him in a box of either being a nice guy or the Son of God. He's a fork in the road. And either we will throw rocks or we will find freedom. Uh, There was a conversation a few years ago with a a French journalist and author, Mechka Asayas, and the uh, U2 singer Bono. And they're talking about uh, music and whether or not to trust performers, and they have this conversation around karma. And then Bono uh, makes the statement that Jesus is the bread of life and savior of the world, and they have this conversation. And Mishka, he says, uh, concerning Jesus as the savior of the world, he says, that's a great idea, no denying it. Such great hope is wonderful even though it's close to lunacy, in my view. Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but son of God, isn't that far-fetched? Bono responds, says, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please, just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word. Because you know, we're going to have to crucify you. You hear what Bono is saying? He's saying that the claims that Jesus made were so drastic. Either he is who he said he was, or we need to crucify him. We need to kill him. You can't put Jesus in just the nice guy category. And so this morning, we want to look at this. What drives us to throw rocks at Jesus and how we can find freedom. Three reasons the claims of Jesus lead us to pick up a rock, to crucify him, to kill him, and three ways he can bring liberation and freedom today. First, why we throw rocks, why Jesus' authority, why Jesus' claim to be the truth leads us to throw rocks. The first reason is that we find supernatural truth at odds with scientific truth. Jesus, he makes a statement. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He's saying, I am God. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus isn't just claiming to be a good teacher. He's claiming to be God, the God who has power over creation. And this leads to what one of my professors in seminary called the God dilemma, the God dilemma dilemma. The tension of feeling like we need to choose a side between God 
and reason, between faith and science. And have you ever been put in a position where you feel like you need to make a really hard choice, where there's two teams and you seem like you can't have it either way? Uh, Two preferences for music, two views of a movie, uh, two groups to join, two perspectives on who has the best ice cream. You know, there's two views. There's Jenny's and there's Grater's. If you're from Texas and you like bluebell ice cream, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry for you. And we feel this tension, right? You need to choose. And people are very passionate about their choice. I mean, Mike Jude, he told me, like, uh, the obvious choice is Jenny's. I mean, where do you live? You're from Columbus. You can't, like, graders over Jenny's? Like disowning your own city. But I, for me personally, I, I'm thinking graders. Like, graders is actually legit ice cream. It doesn't have these weird flavors. I want chocolate and chunks and sugar. I don't want fruit in my ice cream. There's this temptation, right? Two people. Are you going to stand with Columbus? Or are you going to stand with quality ice cream? You need to make a choice. You need to make a choice. We feel this God dilemma. It's as if when it comes to this tension, there's people that say, hey, are you going to be a part of science and reason and logical thought? You're going to join our team? And then people on the other side say, are you going to be a person of faith? person of love and care and concern for the world. Which team are you going to choose? The God dilemma. I think one Christian scientist, of which there are many in the world, in case you didn't know, he gets to the tension of this really well. Uh, Francis Collins, uh, who is a leader in the field of genetics, head of the National Institute of Health, in his book, The Language of God, listen to how he puts this. He says, We will turn our backs on science, speaking of Christians often, we will turn our backs on science because it is perceived as a threat to God, abandoning all the promise of advancing our understanding of nature and applying that that to the alleviation of suffering and the betterment of humankind. Alternatively, we will turn our backs on faith, concluding that science has rendered the spiritual life no longer necessary, and that the traditional religious symbols can now be replaced by engravings of the double helix on our altars. Both of these choices are profoundly dangerous. Both deny truth. Both will diminish the nobility of humankind. Both will be devastating in our future, and both are unnecessary. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshipped in the cathedral or in the laboratory. His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful. And it cannot be at war with itself. Only we imperfect humans can start such battles, and only we can end them. He's saying this is a false choice you feel like you need to make. That one can embrace both science and faith. To say, I believe in science, and that's all that can be true. All that can be true is what can be tested and proven scientifically. That itself is a faith claim. And to say that, that we need to be people of faith and have no concern for scientific discovery is to diminish who God created us, us to be and rational thought. We do not need to feel the pressure to choose one or the other. Another reason we're prone to pick up rocks to throw at Jesus is we find exclusive truth claims unloving. We believe that claims to exclusive ways to God is unloving and often dangerous and arrogant. Jesus said, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That does not sit well. The way. Jesus, you might be a way, but the way. It's exclusive. It's so arrogant. And rightly, we believe that can be dangerous. It can be dangerous. When we look at the world and the problems of the world socially, when we look at violence and wars, you know, nation rising against nation, no people group, no nation really believes they're wrong. That No one believes their father is the devil. We can all justify acts of violence against another people group when we think we're better, we're superior, we have the way. And so rightly, we should be cautious about exclusive truth claims. There's a slippery slope that can lead to violence and persecution of others, socially, but also on a personal level. On a personal level, we know this is true as well. There's a degree of foolishness to buy into someone that says, I have the way. If your grandma calls you and she says she met a nice guy, a very nice, kind man who was looking out for her, and, and she said if, if, if she gave all her money to him and abided in his investment practices, then she would be rich. He has the corner on this one investment, this one time. If she gives all her money, it'll all work out right then. If your grandparents call you and they have that news, what are you going to say? You're going to say, Grandma, okay, no. Who, who is this guy? <laughs> who is this guy? He's not looking out for your best interest. That's not true. There are, anyone who comes along and says, this is the one, the way, abide in my one investment strategy and you will be rich, they don't know what they're talking about. And the same is true for politicians, for people that promise that they are the way, only by abiding in their perspective, their way, giving them their, your vote, will you find freedom and deliverance. We look at that and we think, that's unwise, that's foolish. But, but, you know, yes, exclusive claims can be dangerous, and exclusive claims can be foolish and unloving, but sometimes... Exclusive claims following them can be wise and loving. I want to gently push this on you. Ways in which exclusivity can be an act of love. You know, as a pastor, I have the privilege of marrying people. And at the end of it, I say, you may kiss your bride. I don't say, you can kiss a bride. Now, there's exclusivity. You can kiss your bride. We depend on exclusivity if we have an interview and they offer us a job, and we may uh, put in our two-week notice. We are hoping that the interviewer will fulfill their commitment and be exclusive to us and not keep the job open to others. When we sign up to be at tenants, and we say we're going to move into somewhere, and we start planning accordingly, we hope that they fulfill their bargain, that they don't just keep it open to anyone else who wants to move, move in. We feel frustrated when we make a reservation at a hotel and they don't fulfill their bargain, they say, hey, I'm sorry, someone came along with a little more money. We don't want to be exclusive. We didn't want to exclude them. I'm sorry, you know, good luck. Sometimes exclusivity is kind and loving. Or, for example, there was a recent article in the news which described a young girl with a rare disease. And there were only two doctors in the world who were able to treat it. Now, how do you think her parents greeted that news that there were only two doctors in the world who would be able to treat this rare disease. And they said, ah, that is insulting. That is intolerant. That is very exclusive. We want other treatments. Can't just be two doctors. No. They greeted it with hope. Praise God, there's someone who has a solution. 
And if you met with a doctor and they said, hey, you know, look, I don't want to be exclusive here to different practices and strategies to this. You could take any pill. It doesn't matter. You don't want to be exclusive. Take any pill. They're all the same. How would you treat that doctor? You'd say, what's your problem? A specific disease, a specific ailment requires an exclusive and specific treatment. And so really the challenge of Jesus' exclusivity isn't so much that exclusivity in and of itself is wrong. It's that our conviction and belief that we need the help and remedy he provides. We just don't know if that's true. And that leads to a third reason, third reason why we're prone to pick up a rock and throw it at Jesus' claim and his truth claims. It's this, that we find the truth that we're in bondage insulting. We find Jesus' claim that we are in spiritual bondage insulting. In the text in John 8, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders and his disciples. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then they, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, answered him. They respond. They say, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus gets at the nature of this freedom. He says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus is having this conversation. He's arguing with religious people. And they, this community who he's arguing with, they believed in supernatural truth. And they believed in the exclusive claims to follow God. They had no problem with that. In fact, they were more exclusive than Jesus was. What they struggled with was Jesus' challenge to them of their identity. What they struggled with was Jesus' claim that they needed spiritual freedom, that they were in bondage. You see, that's why in verse 34, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus is saying, look, you think you're free, but you're not. You think you have freedom, but you don't. You are still in slavery. To which they respond, are we not descendants of Abraham? They had built their identity on being descendants of Abraham and doing good works. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm sorry. What you built your identity on, on being a descendant, on doing good works isn't enough. You're still a slave to sin. And we're prone to build our identity on things that keep us in bondage today as well. Uh, many in America, it's, a lot of us, we root our identity on personal freedom. We want freedom to be ourself, personal autonomy, freedom to be me, to live without any restraints, we don't want God, or parents, government, anybody to say, this is how you should live. We want the freedom to be ourselves and do as we please. And Jesus would say, that is a bondage. You're still living in slavery, but we have this temptation to want to be the authority, to want to view life and operate as if we could just make the choices and do it how we want, we'd be free. I think I experience this every time I go to a restaurant. I go to a restaurant, and my expectation is someone will show up, and they, they have a title. It's server, my server. And they will give me a seat, seat me at, at a seat, and they will give me a menu at which I will choose from dishes probably from all over the world. Choice, freedom. Now, what happens if they show up and they say, oh, no, that menu, sorry, 
We'll put that away. Here's what you're going to order. I would think that my rights were being infringed upon. I would want to talk to the manager. I would want to talk to the owner. I would file a complaint. I'd go online and start complaining. You take away my right to order what I want. So we bring that perspective into all of life. You know, maybe you heard of it recently uh, in the UK that KFC uh, ran out of chicken. Did you hear about this? I know, it was a tragedy. Kentucky Fried Chicken ran out of chicken in Chick-fil-A. And what was worse, like a week later, they get their chicken back, and then they run out of the gravy, which in my opinion is worse. I, you just eat that gravy with their mashed potatoes, or I don't think it's technically potatoes, whatever the white fluffy stuff they have. That's glorious. And what was interesting was people's response. It was like, it was like this national tragedy. How dare KFC run out of chicken? This is wrong. This is an injustice. Someone needs to do something. You see, we bring that perspective to life. We feel entitled to playing God, having the choice to do whatever we want. And you see, maybe when you're at a restaurant, it's not such a big deal. Ordering food or maybe choosing, obviously, graters over a Jenny's, a wise choice. But when, it, when we bring that perspective to all of life, it can be paralyzing. The belief that we need to create our identity, that we need to choose who we are, define who we are. Jesus comes, he says, there's a certain bondage, there's a certain slavery in that way of living. So we're tempted to throw rocks. We're tempted to throw rocks when Jesus says he is the truth because it's in conflict with our view of science. We're tempted to throw rocks when Jesus says he is the truth because it conflicts with our view of exclusivity and what is love. We're tempted to throw rocks at Jesus because it means if he's the truth and he's the authority, then maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not. But I want to show, show us now and look to how this can bring freedom. When Jesus says, you shall know the truth, him, and that truth can set you free. How does Jesus becoming the center of your life bring freedom? Uh, first, Jesus frees us from a cold world to beauty and meaning. Jesus, from, Jesus frees us from a view of the world in which it is cold and meaninglessness and meaningless to beauty and meaningful. Uh, one American anthropologist and philosopher, Lauren Isley, he, he gets to this tension that many of us modern thinkers feel in his book, Cosmic Orphan. Listen to what he says. He says, man is the only creature in the universe who asks why. Other animals have instincts to guide them, but man has learned to ask questions. Who am I? Man asks. Why am I here? Where am I going? Since the Enlightenment, when he threw off the shackles of religion, man has tried to answer these questions without reference to God. But the answers that came back were not exhilarating, but dark and terrible. You are the accidental byproduct of nature, a result of matter plus time plus chance. There is no reason for your existence. All you face is death. What does the fact that I ponder the realities of God and meaning and beauty and love, what truth does that teach us? I think this, Peter Berger, a sociologist, puts this well. He says, I can find in human reality certain intimations of God's speech, signals, unclear though they are, of his hidden presence. 
I can relate faith to a number of powerful human realities, the experience of joy, that joy mightily expressed in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the human propensity to order, which appears to correlate with an order in the universe, humanity's immensely suggestive experiences of play and humor, the irrepressible human propensity to hope, the certainty of moral judgments, experiences of transcendence. What he's saying is this, is that when we look at the world and joy and love and beauty and meaning, what truths do they speak to our heart about? Jesus frees us from a cold to beauty and meaning. And I'd encourage us, let's not just affirm this kind of truth. Let's immerse ourselves in it. Immerse yourself in the sciences and arts. Be a learner. Science is not a threat. Experience God's beauty in creation and be a creator. Channel your energy to communicating meaning and beauty. Jesus frees us from the coldness of the world and brings us into a world of beauty and meaning. Also, Jesus frees us from the coldness of selfishness to the warmth of love and equality. Frees us from our selfish tendencies and brings us into a world of love, inclusivity, and equality. Not long ago, I was having a conversation with a young guy about the exclusivity of God. And he thought, and for him, that was the biggest challenge to his faith. He just couldn't get around these exclusive claims from Jesus and other religions. And he thought that many, that the problem with religion was their doctrine. And that really all religious, the different religions have kind of get to like the same kind of idea. They're all really the same. And if we just do away with their differences and embrace their similarities, we'd all be better for it. And I asked him, why did he believe that that was the case? Why did he believe, why did he believe that doctrinal differences were the greatest challenge to his faith? And he said that he believed that the truth about God was that God was an all-loving spirit. An all-loving spirit who wouldn't judge or hold people to account for their actions. And here's the challenge. That idea of God, no religion holds to. And that idea of God is a doctrine. And to want to silence people with other religious beliefs because of your doctrine is a bit ironic. See, the reality is we all have exclusive claims. We all believe that our take on reality should be embraced by everyone else. Here's the challenge. What doctrine can lead us to love those who we don't agree with? What doctrine can lead us to value the perspectives of others? What take on the world can bring humility? That's the tension in the question. And that's why oftentimes, you know, it's interesting, the view of what can be brought into the public sphere. Many today want to say, you know what, ideas of faith, these exclusive ideas, they should not be brought into the public sphere. All that can be brought into the public sphere is secular ideas and science and the facts. But take, for example, a debate between how to treat the poor. If one person on the side of the debate says, well, treatment of the poor, look, survival of the fittest, everyone needs to do what they can. And to create a society where we give special privilege to the poor is to harm people who can take care of themselves and brings everybody down. 
And now imagine someone on the other side of the debate that says, that's not right. We should care for the poor. We should help those who can't help themselves. On what basis can they stake out that claim? Can they appeal to science? No. If anything, social Darwinism is a stronger connection to science. They can appeal to their faith. They can appeal to a God who died for the people wanting to throw rocks at him. Because at the core of the gospel is God relinquishing his power, giving up his power to bless those in need. At the core of the gospel is a God who is judged, but is judged for others. You see, we must, grow, we must bring that into the public sphere. Our faith should shape every area of our life. When Jesus becomes the central truth and defining principle of who we are, we don't, aren't just private about that. It shapes our political discourse. It shapes how we view those in need. It shapes how we love. Jesus frees us from our selfish, protective tendencies to love and care for others, especially those we might not agree with. And lastly, how Jesus brings freedom. Jesus frees us from the burden of earning love to rest in his love. You see, again, why did the Pharisees want to throw rocks at Jesus? Why were they so threatened by him? What did, Jesus is just making statements about the truth. Why are they so threatened by Jesus? It's because they are building an identity. And Jesus comes and challenges it. And in their identity, it is, they are right before God because of their Jewish heritage. And they are right before God because their ability to keep the law. And Jesus says, no. That is not the case. You are still in bondage. You are still in need of freedom. And they had crafted their identity in earning on, who, on their heritage and who they were. Jesus comes and challenges it. And the same challenge is for us today. We're tempted, though we may come to church and do church-type things, we're tempted to build our identity on our heritage and on our good works. We want to craft our sense of meaning and purpose and value based on things like our career. If we could do well at our job and have money and a nice car and nice things, then we have value. Or maybe we build our sense of identity and value and meaning on our family. If our kids do all the right things, if we have the right home, listen to the safe Christian music, do all the safe things, then we have an identity, then we'll have value. And really what we're trying to do, we're trying to earn someone to come along and say, you have made it well done. And we bring that tension and that pursuit into all our relationships. We want our spouse to say, I love you, and there's nothing you can do to turn me away. We want our friends to say, you've made it unconditionally loved. Welcome here. It doesn't matter what you do. I won't turn you away. We want to bring that to our career. If we work enough, they say, you we give you the trophy, the best. We're searching for someone to say, you're accepted. And we want to work and earn this. And then Jesus shows up. And he says something like, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you a great burden. If you do this, you will be accepted. No. He says, I will give you rest. Jesus frees us 
from the constant pursuit to make a name for ourselves, frees us from the constant burden to earn his love and invites us to rest in his work and his love. That, friends, is a freedom no one else can offer. The freedom of God looking at you and saying, I love you not because of who you are and what, you do, what you've done, but I love you because you are made in my image and I sent my son to die on your behalf. No one else can pronounce that identity over you. So let's live in this freedom. You know, personally, I love conversations with people who struggle with faith be it atheists or Christians who ask questions. And we want to be a church that's safe to have these conversations. But for me personally, why do I believe in Jesus? I think because when you put Jesus and the truth of the gospel at the center of your life, and when I've put it at the center of my life, it is good news. It takes a cold and dark world and breathes meaning and beauty, and love, and allows me and us to look at the wrongs of the world and say, it is wrong. That is injustice, not just because I think so, but because the truth of the world, God, says it contradicts his way of relating. And then the constant struggle to make a name and earn it, when Jesus becomes the center, he says, you are accepted in my love. Will you make Jesus and his truth the center of your life? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that, that you are truth. And in a post-truth world, that we can stand on that. And Lord, we have questions, so many. I pray that we can be a safe community to wrestle with those. And we thank you that you are a gracious God, not an insecure God who's threatened by our questions, threatened by our doubts, but we can bring those to you. But Lord, uh, grant us the grace to grow in understanding the truth of who you are and what it means for our life. May these not just be doctrinal statements we have, Uh, But may it be a doctrine embodied. May we live it. We pray this in the name of your Son and the power of your Spirit. Amen.